The recent executive orders on cybersecurity and on diversity and inclusion struck many readers as overly wordy and complex. Hard to understand, actually. My next guest ran these texts through an algorithm-based program that analyzes written text for complexity and understandability. Joining me with what it showed, the CEO of Visible Thread, Fergal McGovern. Mr. McGovern, good to have you back. Hey, great to be here, Tom. And just briefly describe what your technology does and how it works. Our technology uses a mechanism for analyzing text and language in documents, for instance, in this case, uh, two task orders, to assess complexity measures. So, for instance, it's possible to assess whether or not a document has a certain grade level. Grade level means the number of years of education required to easily understand the document. And so, therefore, if you come out with a very high grade level, it becomes a proxy for complexity. So, in this case, uh, if we can discuss some of the measures, we see that the diversity and inclusion exec order has got a grade level of 16.4, which would point to almost the idea that this is way too complex for the vast majority of the U.S. population to easily comprehend. Yeah, grade 16 then means for the United States through yeah. college. You're kind of knocking on the door of a master's degree at that point. You've got a you know primary degree and you're kind of at the high end of that, depending on the nature of your initial degree. But I suppose the important takeaway is less so much the literal meaning. Okay, Maybe you do have that degree, but you're putting a cognitive burden on the reader. And you'll typically find this in very legalistic documents. We've all looked at car rental agreements and whatnot. They tend to be very legalistic in tone. And this is exactly what these two task orders are, are veering towards. It's a, it's a legalistic, wordy kind of uh, set of items and, and not necessarily doing a great job in communicating to the standard person. Yes, just looking at some of the detail in your analysis, if you look at paragraph 40, it has a grade level of 27.1, which I guess is post-doctorate to be able to understand. And the sentence goes exactly. on and on and on and on. There must be 75, 80, 100 words in the sentence. And it's in the passive voice, lots of adverbs, which also add complexity without really adding much otherwise. And long words, long sentences, adverbs, passive voice, that all adds up yep. to just a bad brew of uh, English or any other language. Yeah, it's exactly that. And actually, there's very simple ways to actually avoid this kind of stuff, you know, using pronouns, we, you, uh, directly addressing the audience rather than necessarily, uh, you know, kind of a more academic tone. Uh, shortening sentences, uh, that particular paragraph 40, you know, it, it's got a combination of four extremely long sentences. The, the longest is 67 words long. That's longer than a New York Times lead. Yeah, <laughs> So, and it's it's classic stuff. You know, you find this in legal documentation a lot where there's kind of multi-clause sentences, different intent, valuable content, really important information, but it's not getting out. It's hard to understand. And what you get typically, particularly in government agencies, and this is a classic example, is that then people in government need to simplify this type of content. But actually what is a shame is that you can actually nip the problem at source and actually address the issue where it starts. And that lowers the cost for government. It makes life much easier for the standard individual. And what about the argument that, well, it has to be this complex and detailed because it's legalistic and it has a legal basis. And therefore, that's the only way we can make it legally precise. Because you hear this one a lot, too. Yeah, it's it's which is a very fair argument in certain contexts, right? Precedent is really important in the legal context. But much of the content in this document, you know, we're not saying the entire document can be short sentences and remove passive voice. There are legal precedent. I'll read some. This is in the opening page. Um, let me read it actually fully. As the nation's largest employer, and by the way, this is the uh, inclusivity one. 
So as the nation's largest employer, the federal government must be a model for diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility where all employees are treated are treated as passive voice, we treat would be active, with dignity and respect. Accordingly, the federal government must. So accordingly is a very legally heavy word, and it's not required here. It's going to alienate the reader. And this can be easily re-articulated in a much simpler way. In fact, I had to stab it up myself. So that entire sentence is grade 18. My little rewrite uh, got it to about a grade 11 level, which basically means it's a much simpler version of that without losing any of the meaning. There's a time and a place for precedent, but actually you can simplify a lot of content. And grade 11 would be certainly well within the norms of the federal managerial class and people that are making policy decisions and hiring decisions are for the most part college educated. For sure. And the way to view it is that it's almost less so could somebody have the education level. It's how much friction do you want to introduce to the communication channel? So if a bunch of people, which no doubt is the case in in these two instances, internally in the federal agencies are trying to interpret this, make simplified versions of this, the friction to translate it into a simplified view is increased. So effectively, it's costing the government uh, dollars and, and time and energy. We're speaking with Fergal McGovern. He's the CEO of Visible Thread. Yes, I mean, if you go home and you're going to read for your evening reading Dostoevsky, then you're expecting a little friction. You've got to maybe reread certain sections and dig in. It's like doing the crossword puzzle in some ways. But when you are doing business communication to get something done in a large bureaucracy, then you want a pretty thin streamlined arrow to be able to cut through yeah, and, and and this is absolutely the case. It's a little like, look, if you go to the sea and you're lucky enough to kind of take vacation this year, you want to relax with a nice, easy, pacey book, if, if that's what your poison is. I, I love Michael Connolly and, I, you know, nice, easy stuff, right? And it's communicating well. It's got a storyline that makes a lot of sense. It is possible in the context of kind of more, quote unquote, serious content to make it easier to digest and pacier. So the choice is very simple. I mean, do you want a Hemingway, the old man, the sea type? Uh, approach, or do you want something more like Ulysses or, or something extremely Dostoevsky or something of that nature? And did you also look at the executive order on cybersecurity? That was actually the longer one, I believe. One of them was like 8,000 words. One was 5,000 words. Yeah, yeah we, we, we looked at both. And actually, this is the beauty of technology. Technology is really good at kind of you know dumb work. So measuring metrics is really what technology is good. Now, there's a lot of clevers behind in the background uh, assessing this. But uh, the cybersecurity one to that point had 8,590 words. The diversity one had 5,800 words. So a little shy of 3,000 words didn't difference. But interestingly, both scored almost identical from a grade standpoint. So grade 16.4 in terms of the diversity executive order, 16.6, basically identical in terms of cybersecurity. And the reason I found it very interesting to look at the diversity inclusivity one and actually focus a little bit more into that and see, you know, was surprised with the complexity there is because look at the audience for that. Look what it's trying to do. Look at the spirit of the exec order. It's, it's absolutely, in my opinion, very well placed. You know, putting politics aside, it seems to have the right intent, but yet the complexity is almost uh, pretty much identical to cybersecurity. You expect cybersecurity to be kind of complex. You expect long words. Uh, you expect complex items. Uh, but it was it was basically exhibiting the same characteristics, which leads you to conclude that it's the same format, the same tone, and that is all addressable. There is a shift that we can make if there is a concerted set of energy and initiative put behind it. And do you think that perhaps in institutions and large organizations that tend to put out stuff like this, it's the result of having 
so many people have to weigh in and be satisfied with it that it becomes the result of groupthink and group writing, which gains weight as it kind of rolls downhill. There is an element of that, but I think the more pervasive issue here is kind of a, we've always done it this way, therefore we must continue to do it this way. It's almost like, well, this is how we do things. Uh, we put it out like this. This, you know, we, we are lawyers. We're trying to put this thing out. Interesting case study. Uh, we do a lot of work with the Australian government, which is obviously you know a faraway place, but the lessons are, are, are very interesting. The prime minister's office, so effectively the equivalent of the president in the U.S., put in place a concerted initiative to have a transparent communication mechanism with the general public. They said, right, we are prioritizing transparent communications, and they were worried about you know, fundamental democratic rights and, and principles of democracy. Uh, that was the driving force. And this was about four years ago, five years ago at this stage. They mandate that any externally facing content should be grade eight or below. And they're doing it not necessarily to be literal on this. It's a proxy for complexity. So I think that requires behavior change. It requires a lot of retraining. It requires helping people understand why is it worthwhile making that change. And human beings are not so good at behavior change. So we find a lot... You're kind of combining technology with handholding, with education. Most people who are not professional writers have no idea what passive voice is. They don't know that it can be rearticulated in a more an easy to understand way. Uh, most people don't realize the impact that a very long, complex sentence has on the reader, and they don't see it. And then when you shine a light on it and you put metrics on it, it's not an opinion, subjective view anymore. It's it's the metrics say this. Okay, if you choose to ignore that. Fair enough. And we find that that actually inculcates a lot of change. We're working with one very, very large global insurance organization who's got 6,000 users, and they're spread across the entire organizations, HR, audit, operations, back office. It's not the comms and, and, and marketing team that are using this. They are, of course, to an extent. But the problem is that in most organizations, everything is bottlenecked through a manual review process. And therefore, by actually allowing and equipping people to self-score content, that is a game changer. Now, that requires some technology, but it's behavior change as well. Yes. My advice is to go through documents, look for the verb to be in any form and rewrite yeah. it. <laughs> and <laughs> exactly. get rid of the passive there, voice. There are, there are a bunch of like telltales that something is coming from a legalistic standpoint or just not, not coming from a, an easily understandable standpoint. Fergal McGovern is CEO of Visible Thread. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Not at all, Tom. It's a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with a link to more of his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Here, and we hope understand, the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? 
Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, 
uh, do what you think is right and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.